Thank you, Anna. Are we on? Yes. Didn't quite get that right in the first meeting. So, so, so good to be with you this morning. I recognise lots of you, but it's always good to come back and, and not recognise everyone in the room because it's indicative of the fact that God is adding to you and growing you and you have done so well uh, as a church in lockdown. It's been a really tough season, hasn't it? been a tough season personally, it's been a tough season for the church in the UK, it's been tough for every local church, but just hearing the stories of what God is doing, love the stories of Alpha, we've had um, uh, just finished an Alpha course and um, one of the, the groups that was uh, um, part of this Alpha course was run by uh, a recent arrival from Hong Kong, so he ran his discussion group as a bilingual Hong Kong, uh, Cantonese and English-speaking group. And he was so encouraged by the fruit. He, he had one couple say, um, uh, right, we're ready to pray the prayer, but we don't want to um, pray it on the Alpha night. We want to pray it on the Sunday so we've got time to prepare our hearts. And uh, uh, another lady also made a first-time commitment. And they're so excited about that, they've got uh, a whole bunch of new people arriving from Hong Kong over the summer. They're ready to go again uh, in, in the summer. I'm praying that God will give us 50 people in the church from Hong Kong. We started with one couple. We've got about 25 people now, which is amazing. Um, if you watched the Catalyst weekend last weekend, you'll have seen uh, that Helsham's impact goes far and wide. So Chris, our younger son, was leading worship. He has a, a man bun that gets taller and taller. He was probably about five foot ten when we left. He's now about six foot six because it just grows and grows and the beard gets longer and longer. Uh, so he sends his love. Uh, Tom Williams sends his love. He was saved into the church here. He leads our site in Totten, which is on the west of the city by the New Forest. He and Ali, his wife, are doing really well. Uh, they've just been able to start meeting again. Uh, and some of you have been around long enough to remember M.A. Do you remember M.A. was the youth leader here? Well, we've managed to lure M.A. back to Southampton. So he's been in Manchester with his wife. She's uh, very heavily pregnant at the moment, and they're going to be moving in the autumn, and he's going to be doing youth work with us and also helping to lead CRY, which is our international uh, work in the local church. So uh, all of those people you gave away and we've been hugely blessed to receive them. So thank you. Um, personal news, Janet and I, grandparents, we've got two little grandchildren now. We so love our grandkids. It's, uh, you give them back as well, don't you, at the end of the day? That's good too. So we've got a little granddaughter aged two called Zara. She's a lot of fun and uh, Janet Charmine's hair on a Thursday and then we've got a little grandson aged one called Daniel uh, and he and his mum and dad live in Guildford. We've got all our kids living fairly nearby so we've been able to um, you know, still maintain good contact with them. So that's all really, really good. I'm going to read God's word in a minute and we're going to be reading from 
the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah really speaks to us prophetically about what God is doing in this season, both in our lives personally, in the life of the local church and in the church in the UK, and I think as well in the nation, to, to be honest. Um, Nehemiah uh, records events that, that occurred two and a half thousand years ago, 455 BC. And uh, the background to the story, God's people have been in exile. They got uh, Jerusalem got trashed by the Babylonians. They were taken into exile for 70 years. And then you fast forward 141 years and Jerusalem is in the process of being rebuilt. And it's got so much to say to us, this book, about emerging from global pandemic. Um, I don't know about you, I guess for most of us, it's felt like we've been living in a sort of exile world over the last 15 months. That Psalm, Psalm 137 of Boney M. fame, by the rivers of Babylon, there we wept when we remembered Zion, we hung up our musical instruments. That's been paralleled by our loss of corporate worship. And it was great to be uh, led uh, by the worship team this morning. Uh, but isn't it going to be great when we can sing again? It really is. Um, so there's been huge losses. Um, and I would say that um, living for Jesus is never easy. It's not easy in 21st century Britain. Uh, but do you know what? The challenges that Nehemiah and his contemporaries faced uh, also were huge. They had a huge task of rebuilding a derelict city. Uh, but let's read. Uh, we're halfway through the story this morning. Um, and we're going to read from chapter 6. So, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors at the gates. So Sambalat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realised they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sambalat's servant came with an open letter in his hand, and this is what he said. There's a rumour among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. And that is why you're rebuilding the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you've appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you, look, there's a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king of Persia, that's Artaxerxes. So I'd suggest to you, come and talk it over with me. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. They were just trying to intimidate us. 
imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, son of um, Deliah and grandson of Metabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let's meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. But I replied, should, I, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realised that God had not spoken to him, but he'd uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they'd be able to accuse and discredit me. Remember, oh my God, all the evil things that Tobiah and Sambalat have done. And remember Nadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her who tried to intimidate me. So on the 2nd of October, the war was finished, just 52 days after we'd begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realised this work had been done with the help of our God. So I've called this, uh, this morning's preach Winning Through, how to actually in the face of adversity and opposition and difficulty, press through as the people of God. I want you to notice, first of all, that the exiles had seen Jerusalem in ruins for 141 years. That is a very long time. That's two lifetimes. But did you notice something in verse 15? They got the job done in 52 days. Ruins for 141 years. They completed the rebuild task in seven and a half weeks. Because when the people of God give themselves wholeheartedly to the work of God, God can change a spiritual landscape that has existed in this case for a century and a half. This passage that we read is really a passage that is about spiritual warfare. That's really what I'm focusing on this morning. We need to recognise as Christians we are in a battle. There's an enemy out there who wants to destroy us. And if you flick back a couple of chapters, in chapter 4, you get introduced to a couple of rogues. And their names are Sambalat and Tobiah. And in chapter 6, you get a third villain who is added to the story, and his name is Geshem. See, in the Old Testament part of the story, the enemies of God are flesh and blood human beings just like us and at times God's people are physically literally at war with them that is not how things work out in our part of the story we need to recognize we're not at a we're not in a physical battle we're in a spiritual battle we're against spiritual forces who are out to do everything they can to frustrate the plan of God, and do maximum harm to your walk with God and my walk with God. Now, we shouldn't 
talk about the devil too much because we don't want to over-egg his importance or his power. But we can't ignore him either. We need to recognise him and deal with him. Do you remember the story of Jesus in the wilderness? Three times the enemy comes to Jesus and seeks to tempt him and take him out from the plan of God. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus recognises here that the devil, or Satan as he's called, is not a vague force, he's not an influence, he is the enemy of God and the people of God. But we shouldn't get over-obsessed and over-nervous about the devil either. I love the story of the famous Pentecostal preacher, Smith Wigglesworth, from about 80 or so years ago. He'd had... 36 hours of continual prayer and preaching and he was exhausted so he goes to bed and after half an hour he feels the bed shaking and he wakes up and there's an apparition of a demonic spirit at the end of his bed and he just looks and rubs his eyes and says it's only you and he goes straight back to sleep he wasn't phased he wasn't over exaggerating the power of the enemy. 1 Peter 5, however, does recognise that the devil is a threat. He's described as a roaring lion on the prowl to gobble up people. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armour of God so you'll be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, Paul says, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So we recognise we're in a battle. Remember a few years ago, I heard a great preach on this, and the preacher was saying, it's like you're in a football match. And it's half time. And the coach has got you in the dressing room. And it's not a league match, it's a cup match. It's win or bust. And the coach says to you, you need to understand your opponent opponent is the dirtiest opposition you can ever imagine. They don't play by the rules. They will kick at you. They'll spit at you. They'll swear at you and they'll intimidate you in every possible way and they'll do it all behind the referee's back. Don't know if you've ever played a sport where that's happened to you. I have. It's so tempting to lash out, to punch an opponent or something. But you're going to do huge reputational damage to yourself. You'll get yourself sent off. But more importantly, you'll do damage to your team. So that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity. Can I say to you this morning, if you are a young Christian, a new Christian, maybe you're feeling under pressure. It's been a difficult season. Be encouraged. The devil wouldn't have given you a thought before you became a Christian. Why? Because he had you exactly where he wanted you. That's why we're told in the Bible, when we become a Christian, we're rescued from the kingdom of darkness 
and transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. See, before we became a follower of Jesus, we're in the devil's grip and we didn't even realise it. You struggling with temptation? Good. It's a sign you recognise you're in a battle. Before you were a Christian, you'd have just given up. What about those of us who've walked with Jesus a bit longer? If you're an older Christian, don't think you are immune from temptation. The temptations of maturity are just as powerful and dangerous as the temptations of youth. Sins of lust, of pride, of laziness, self-indulgence and ease will bite you in the bum unless you are on the front foot and engaged in the battle. So this morning what I wanted to do was just look at three little pressure points that Nehemiah faced in this passage that could have taken him out and prevented him from doing what God had called him to do. And I've come up with a little acronym because it's a bit of a memory aid. And the acronym is FED, F-E-D, because the enemy wants to constantly feed us lies. And we have to choose to feed ourselves with truth. Lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about the situation we find ourselves in. So the three lies are one, falsehood, verse 6, Two, error, verse 10, and three, distraction, verse 2. So first of all, falsehood. You will find that at times people say lies and half-truths about you, about us as the people of God, in order to discredit us, to undermine our reputation, and therefore do harm to the work of God. That's what's happening here in this story. Three enemies, Sambala, Tobiah and Geshem. And the lie is you and the Jews are planning to rebel and that's why you're building the wall. You, Nehemiah, you want to be a king in Jerusalem. The deliberate spreading of false rumour. It's wrong on so many different levels. The accusation of rebellion is actually a rehash of an earlier accusation in Ezra chapter 4. The accusation then was that the earlier uh, returns from exile, Zerubbabel, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, they're stirring up rebellion against the Persian king Artaxerxes. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. And there's a fresh accusation now against Nehemiah that this rebuilding program is really largely a vehicle for his own personal ambition. Once the city's built, the accusation goes, Nehemiah's going to have himself crowned as king. How does Nehemiah respond? Flat denial. There is no truth, says Nehemiah, in any of this. You're making it all up. He also discerns the motives of his opponents. You're trying to intimidate us, he says. You're trying to discourage us. There is real power in discouragement. Don't know whether you have ever battled with discouragement. Life is tough. Life has been tough in the last 15 months. There is power in discouragement. And we have to feed ourselves 
encouragement. Can I say, don't get over-defensive. Nehemiah didn't get over-defensive. How dare they say X? How dare they say Y? There's reputational damage. No, he doesn't do any of that. This is not about Nehemiah's reputation. This is about the fame and the glory of God himself. So he turns the accusation to prayer. Love Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord. I've acted with integrity. The second pressure point is error. Come inside the temple, Nehemiah. Your enemies want to kill you. So come and hide in the temple. Because if you hide in the temple, you're going to be safe. This guy, Shemaiah, isn't actually just giving advice to Nehemiah. He's actually bringing false prophecy. It reads as prose in our Bible, but it's actually a prophetic poem or a prophetic song. Imagine someone prophesying this or singing this over you. They're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. The whole intent is to put fear into Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah's response, no. No way, Jose. Should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realised God had not spoken to him, says Nehemiah, but he'd uttered this prophecy because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they'd be able to accuse me and discredit me. See, the thing is this, Nehemiah is not a priest. So he's allowed into the temple courts, but he's not allowed into the temple itself. Some years earlier, in the Bible story, there's a king called King Uzziah. And he makes a mistake. As a king, he was not allowed in the temple, but he decides he knows better than God. He goes into the temple and he comes under the judgment of God. And he is inflicted with leprosy for the rest of his life. See, as a king rather than a priest, King Uzziah had no right to go into the temple, and God judged him. Just contrast that for a moment with Isaiah chapter 6. In the year the king Uzziah, this leprous priest, died, I, says Isaiah, saw the Lord high and lifted up. There's a massive contrast here between a sinful king disobedient to God and the commands of God and Isaiah who encounters God in his holiness, in his beauty, in his perfection and he responds, woe is me. If like me you've got an NLT Bible, translate it, it's all over. I am doomed for I'm a sinful man, says Nehemiah, filthy lips. I live with, amongst a people with filthy lips. I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Nehemiah feared God more than he feared danger. He was not prepared to compromise on what God had spoken, what he knew was the truth of the word of God, just to make life easier for himself. It's a bit like the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, a well-known story 
One day, Potiphar's wife looked to seduce Joseph. It would have been so tempting for Joseph to be soft on himself. I've been trashed by my brothers, sold as a slave. Now I'm offered pleasure on a plate. I deserve it. Where was God when I needed him to show up? But Joseph, like Nehemiah, chose to do the right thing. Today, we're under all sorts of pressure to compromise, to sell out on what God has said just to make life a bit easier for ourselves. But Nehemiah's response needs to be your response and my response. I'm not going to compromise on what God has clearly said in his written word. And then finally, distraction, verse 2. Come and meet with us, say Nehemiah's enemies. Come and meet with us on the plains of Ono. And I know it's a weak joke, but Nehemiah's response was, oh no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. He says this in my translation, I am doing a great work. Now that looks like he's bigging himself up. It's not really a very good translation. It's not self-praise. It's much better translated. I have a huge task on my hands. Why, would, why on earth would I stop and come and meet with you? I know what God's called me to do. There are so many good things that we could be doing in our lives. Let's not be people who are easily distracted. I had a conversation just a couple of weeks ago with um, a new guy at KCC. So I'm just trying to get to know him. And I said to him, so, you know, what, what do you do? And he said, well, I run a business and my aim in business is on to be as ethical as I possibly can and at the same time to generate as much profit as I can to invest in the kingdom of God. I love that clarity of focus. Spoke to a social worker in the church recently and she works in a fostering agency because she says, actually, what I do as a foster, uh, uh, working in fostering, I want to make sure that God uses me to really reinforce to these little kids and to their parents that every single human being is made in the image of God. And these vulnerable kids are precious and they count in the purposes of God. I love that. Love the story back in church history, don't you, of Susanna Wesley. 17 kids. She was a stay-at-home mum the whole of her adult life. Think, how did she make her life count? She was absolutely focused on what God had called her to do. She poured her life into her 17 kids and she produced two world changers, John and Charles Wesley changed Britain and changed the world because they had a mum who was focused and single-minded. I can be so easily distracted. Spend a whole day doing stuff, answering emails which do need to be answered, responding to WhatsApp, Facebook, Twitter, 
iMessages. I can kid myself I'm being productive, where in reality, I've allowed myself to be distracted. I am about a great work. You are about a great work, both personally and together as a local church. We focused on the Alpha course just before I came up to preach. And uh, I love the fact that Nicky Gumbel, it's so true, he says that all of us have a God-shaped hole in our lives. And that's why Alpha has been so fruitful over the decades. But as I was thinking about where to land this preach this morning, I want to leave you with this thought. I believe, as well as having a God-shaped hole, all of us have a fear-shaped hole in our lives. And here's the thing. What do you choose to fill that fear-shaped hole with? Do Do you fill it with a fear of man? See, Nehemiah could so easily have given in to the words that came against him, these lies that were spoken over him. Falsehood, error, distraction, it's all the fear of man. And if you give in to the fear of man, it will cripple you. It will take you out of the game. Instead, Nehemiah chose to fear God. Got a quotation here, and it's a bit wordy, but hang in there, it's beautiful. It sums up where I'm wanting to land. This is C.H. Spurgeon speaking, the great preacher from 170 years ago. He says this, Gazing upon the vast expanse of the waters, looking up to the innumerable stars, examining the wings of an insect and seeing there the matchless skill of God displayed in the minute or standing in a thunderstorm watching as best you can the flashes of thunder and lightning and listening to the Lord's voice have you not shrunk into yourself and said great God how terrible art thou not afraid but full of delight like a child who rejoices to see his father's wealth his father's wisdom, his father's power. Happy and at home, but feeling oh so little. That's a really good place to find yourself this morning. God wants to set you free, wants to set me free from a fear of man. People will say all sorts of untrue things about you, about me, about us, just like they did about Nehemiah. How do you respond? A tailspin of self-justification, defensiveness, rooted in the fear of man, or like Spurgeon, I trust you, Lord. I look at the vastness of the universe. I look at your awesome power. I look at the thunderstorm. I look at the detail of the tiny wings of a little insect. It's all yours, Lord. But here's the greatest thing. I worship you not just as the creator. I know you as father. As a child of God, I am secure. See, Nehemiah chose not to go into the temple because he feared God 
more than he feared man. Do you fear man or do you fear God? I choose this morning not the fear of man, but like Nehemiah, a reverent fear that God is my heavenly Father. I'm going to trust him for this season and for the future. I want to invite you to step into faith this morning. God, you hold the universe together. But more than that, you are my Father. Freeze you to live life full of faith, believing God that he who has been faithful is going to carry us right through. Should we stand up? Just want to invite Nan to come and lead us. But let's just settle in our hearts. God, free me from the fear of man. Free me, Lord. Lord, I reject every lie, every falsehood, every accusation. I trust you, Lord. And I step forward into today into tomorrow, into the week, into the year ahead, trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen.